Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to The Shapes of Stories, a podcast with me, Lawrence Prestige, as your host. Stories come in all shapes and sizes, whether it be from our favourite books, our life experiences, or the day-to-day challenges and issues we face in the world today. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Shapes and Stories with me, Lawrence Prestige. Uh, I just want to say thank you for everyone that's been tuning in so far, and we hope you enjoyed the first episode of The Shapes and Stories with um, Donald Sturrock. Um, I'm really excited because we are joined by children's book royalty, I suppose is the only way I can describe him as. Um... He is the winner of the Roald Dahl Funny Prize. He has written over 100 books. Um, He's the International Children's Literacy Advisor. Um, He has co-wrote a book with Paul McCartney. He is, I mean, I'm fond of him. He is the wonderful Philip Ardar. And it was really great talking to Philip. We've recorded on my birthday. So, I mean, obviously it was a really wonderful treat for me to talk to Philip Ardar on my birthday. Um, It was really interesting, the topics that we talked about. We talked about um, his journey into writing, how he's been doing over lockdown. And it was really interesting getting his thoughts on the children's book industry as well. And um, yeah, which is really, I don't want to give away too much. Um, We talk about his uh, experience of Paul McCartney as well, which was really, really interesting to hear about. Um, I should say he's got a new book that's come out called What's in the Truck. So be sure to keep an eye out for that. I'm sure it's going to be an incredible read for his younger readers out there. Uh, Without further ado, here is my chat with Philip Ardar. Philip Ardar, thank you so much for joining me here today. How have you been, like, with this whole sort of COVID life going on right well, now? Uh, first off, thanks very much for asking me on, Lawrence. Um, okay, how have I been? Well, I think everyone assumes, uh, just because you work from home, that COVID's going to make the least difference, really. But so it was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I live with uh, with my wife and son, who, who is about 17 now. And um, you just think, well, that's what you've always been doing, so you'll just chug along nicely. But it was very interesting to begin with. I actually found it very difficult to write. Um, I wasn't particularly worried. I wasn't lying away, sucking the corner of my duvet, thinking we're all going to die. We're all going to die! (laughs) Um, But at some unconscious, which people incorrectly refer to as subconscious, thus wearing their ignorance like a cloak, um, at some unconscious level, um, it must have been bothering me because it took me really a good month before I could get back into writing. But as far as on the surface, Mm -hmm. if you were an alien and didn't know what was going on in my head, um, things are pretty much the same. I, I very rarely... I mean, since since the first lockdown in March, I have had two meals out, once on my birthday in September, and a, a, a roast dinner this weekend. But otherwise, I haven't socialised at all. Um, I haven't seen anybody, yeah. really. So um, I just carry on being mm. an antisocial old git, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people say to me as well, like, oh, you, don't, you do writing, so I suppose it hasn't really affected you, the whole mm. pandemic and the virus. And it's just like... Well, no, it really has because you're kind of, you know, when you're stuck at home so much, you kind of almost, you know, luckily I've got a, a nice home and nice family, but it's, 
you always resent a little bit that you're sort of oh, I can't go into that room and start <laughs> writing again and it, it and it and it does and it, and it is tougher to kind of when you are working from home to and you're stuck at home as well it is kind of um difficult to kind of engage into that productivity and creativeness I'm not sure if you found yeah that. no no I, I think I think that's really true and also it makes you realize how important is as a, as a commissioned writer to have the publishers at the publishing company to, to know that they're all there and you ring up with a query about something and the designers will have a word with an editor who will speak to someone in marketing and, and and sort of knowing they're all behind the scenes they're that support group even though you don't see them you just imagine them at yeah. HQ and when you realize that you know they're at home and some of them don't know what to do and they you you suddenly miss that I miss the possibility of being able to go into into the publishers because I I think that can be a really creative thing in itself and and I know there's a lot of talk about people now um, not wanting to go back to work full-time or wanting to work from home and I think Mm -hmm. you lose that that thing where you're just having a cup of coffee and you walk past somebody's desk and you see a piece of artwork on it and you go that's an amazing illustrator who are they and then they show you their portfolio or some of their work online and then you go wow, I'd love to do something with them, or that that would make a great character. And it's these serendipitous moments that can actually spark things. And, and I think that's something yeah. we're all missing out on, those of us who always work from home. Mm-hmm. I'm very lucky, by the way, you, know, you, you say you can't go into your usual corner and write because some obnoxious mm-hmm. relative or friend is seated there. That's um, I'm very lucky. <laughs> I have, a, I have a, um, a, an office and, and a study. I have two rooms that are just mine. Um, today I'm squeezed into a corner of my office and the only other living thing is there's a there's my son's cat ginger biscuit over in the corner there having a snooze but I am very lucky in that I I have got that space and uh, there are man traps and spring guns and sensors and things so no one can (laughs) sneak in and use them but yeah I mean this the the the, um, since March it's been a very odd world we're living in and I don't think anyone would be unaffected really yeah, it's, it's getting to the stage where I'm also like, I might do a roll dial and just build a hut. Yeah. <laughs> just get in the garden and just have my little sort of womb where I'm just yeah, I, I, <laughs> in I, there. I and you just, said in the garden. Yeah. I had visions of you building it between the uh, sofa and the television. <laughs> yes. Just so there's a away huge hut <laughs> slap bang in the middle of your living room. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um, so I mean, oh, you're very active in terms of going out in terms of book events yeah. and, and and engaging with children and things like that. How have you found not being able to do that? that? Because I mean, it must be yeah, it must be really that, difficult. I found it difficult. It is it is a difficult one. I mean, people say you know you're always yeah. out and about doing stuff. Now that's not true between you and me. Um, in the same mm. way that people assume I'm extremely as well as extremely good looking, extremely gregarious, right on the first count. Well, not so much. I was going to yeah, say not so much on the second <laughs> because. Um, people see me when I'm out and about so when they see me they think I'm out and about but which I am but I spend most of my time writing at home but an important part of that is knowing that I'd be going places and this year sadly no Edinburgh I did I did record an event for for the Edinburgh Festival it would have been I think my 22nd year in a row at the Edinburgh Book Festival I was supposed to be going to Cheltenham I was supposed to be going to Switzerland I was supposed to be going to to Abu Dhabi there are many 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 things plus obviously UK um, English nothing in Wales this year I think but yes all that's out the window and that and that's such a shame Mm -hmm. partly because of the untold riches and adoration which we always like but also it is that having the contact with readers and booksellers and librarians and things and I really really feel the lack of that 
Yeah, and it kind of makes the whole when you're sort of engaging with the kids that you write for. I always find it always makes the the editing all the kind of process that you've been through in terms of going through that work worth it when you're engaging. Yeah, you sound with the like kids. someone who likes children. I hate children, but they are a cash cow. <laughs> so, um, as someone when I say that, people are very shocked. But I say, do you think that um, undertakers, uh, particularly like dead bodies, you know, do they go home and there's someone a stiff on the floor with a cork in their bottom to stop fluids falling out? <laughs> Going, well, hey, um, it's money. It's a job. It's a job. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I write because one. I need to write. <laughs> I'm just very fortunate to have an audience, even if they are obnoxious, horrible little small people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you've been um, you've been very open about sort of um, libraries and the closure of libraries mm-hmm. and you know, the importance of having them um, them uh, sort of stay open before before the pandemic. Yeah. Even before that, you yeah. were a very advocate of them. Um, do you worry about? Um, the future of libraries post covid and i guess books not just bookshops as well because yeah. more people i know are just turning to amazon because it's just well we can you know we could just get it to tomorrow and just get it on amazon uh, there are um independent book sellers are getting together to try before christmas to create a system whereby you can tackle amazon and of course there's already the hive thing where you order it through a central um website but your local bookshop will will supply it so yes obviously amazon is uh, is an extraordinary problem but as far as libraries are concerned yes i i actually worked as a, an unqualified library assistant in the uh 1980s uh and they are so important i mean i always say it's a cliche but if if libraries didn't exist someone would invent them and in fact um i suspect someone would have invented them during uh, this whole COVID crisis, they go, where can we go for information, local news, what's happening, and get something to occupy us, i.e. books, etc. And someone would have invented these and try and found a system where you could safely be two metres apart, but still just hire people with extremely long arms and broom handles and things. But uh, libraries are <laughs> such an amazing, such an amazing idea. And it is tragic. It is, um, it's this either-or thing, isn't it? Uh, it's all very easy yeah. to criticise. But if you're in a situation where you go, do we put money to this or to that? Libraries have often suffered, and that's because people have underestimated how important they are. Because obviously far more library books are taken out a year than people actually go to live sport events, etc., etc., etc. And they give so much opportunity and, and they give access. There's obviously a place of safety to go, somewhere quiet if you're in a house full of lots of people. This lie that the government put out about how many people have access to the internet, what they mean is there's a computer in the house. Well, you know, if you come from a family of six and dad won't let you near it, that, that doesn't help at all. So a library serves a million and one functions and I do fear for them. And I do worry that, yes, it, you know, this will be a further excuse uh, but people are fighting back, and I am—I'm the um, lifetime ambassador for the uh, uh, school libraries group for the um, what's in effect is a society for slip for uh, librarians. <laughs> and school libraries play a hugely important part at the moment. I think and even Massive, more yeah. um, because people can't go to other libraries. People are back at school, but there are other places they can't go, and school librarians are working really hard. To, to match children with books, whether they're information books or fun books and things, to 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 help them at this weird, weird time. That was very serious, wasn't it? But it is a serious business. Well, I mean, going to something that's not too serious about libraries, I did see that, um, oh, it's, it's been a few days ago that Donald Trump's obviously on his campaign <laughs> rally at the minute, and, and he was talking about opening the Donald J. Trump Library. Mm. 
and he always and he, you know and he, and he said about it being um very interactive which i think is code for not so many books yes yeah. oh absolutely <laughs> made it will only stock his books the two books with his name on them that he didn't actually write I, I remember yeah. just just before the last election, the guy who wrote it said, "If Trump wins, I think I better leave the country." <laughs> uh, oh, so I mean, we laugh, but what what a terrifying state of the world because the man is a bully, and and and, mm-hmm. and crazy. But what worries me just as much as Donald Trump are the people who know he's a nut job and who don't believe a word he says. But the Republicans who think if this can get us into power and keep us in power. We'll run with it. And they're, 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 the guilt is on their hands. They're a culpable b- bunch of beeps, you know. it's a, <laughs> This bully culture is horrible. It's horrible. And we get a bit of that in yeah. this country now, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think in in the US, it's it, it seems to be more intensified just because Donald Trump just if you if you don't if you're not a yes man for Donald Trump, mm, you're out. Mm. I mean, that's you know, with, with Boris Johnson, I feel like <laughs> he probably has got a few more people he has to be held accountable to, and you know, and and there's a few people that do challenge him a lot more. But with Donald Trump, it's mm. just he's got a way of just avoiding people that mm. are going to challenge him mm. and just kind of swing. You know, he's you know he's got a it's very sinister way of handling, I suppose. It's, it's terrifying. Um, yeah. I don't believe in God, but I will create a God just so I can pray to him that uh, Donald Trump or her, that Donald Trump doesn't doesn't get a second term because I don't think it's a foregone mm. conclusion. I really no, don't. No, no, I don't either. No, no. Um, so a lot of people would, would really want me to ask you this in terms of the journey that you've been on, the persistence, the, the hard work, the challenges that you faced growing that beard. Yes, well, obviously. <laughs> now, people can't and... see it and it's their loss, but I'm hoping in, in association yeah. with the podcast there will be a free... Uh, either inflated, flatable, oh, we'll, we'll, life size. We, we're gonna, um, yeah, we're gonna hope. We're gonna. I think we're gonna try and get a few um, video um, footage. Oh of dear, well, I, I would just have put, I would so have put some could, clothes on so they can see I, the video. If only I'd known. Maybe you could um, sort of, I don't know, a green screen, a stripy shirt or something on me, so I look dressed. Um, <laughs> we'll do that. Yeah, well, I don't know if you saw. It was on social media the other day. I'm actually the first UK author who's been um, made a, an area of special scientific interest and and also an area of outstanding natural beauty so this this is a first <laughs> and and i'd like to think that the uh, the area of outstanding natural beauty would have come without my foliage without the beard but obviously the special scientific interest is i have a very rare family of newts currently living in my beard um and it does make combing no actually i have um some very nimble fingered spider monkeys who just once a week come in and you know teasel and unteasel and <laughs> and beautify it but yes i've had this this beard or a relative of it for oh no over 25 years i think and it's gradually getting it's much shorter than it has been um yeah the two of the big changes in lockdown is one is my beard has been trimmed a bit more and secondly I don't <clears throat> I don't wear a tie I mean normally if I was naked I'd still be wearing a tie but I uh, I don't wear a tie so much but no I, I the problem I have with the beard is when I was um 50 and this is where I pause for you to say 50 you're over 50 50 you're, you're over yeah thank you very 50. good well done if you could we'll wow. edit that down um <laughs> I was thinking of um, shaving my beard off, but my family made it extremely clear to me that um, the only thing they like about me is my beard. Uh, so so I'm stuck <laughs> with it. And this has always been the thing with my publishers. You know, all my books say, big and bearded, Philip Arder, because I'm two metres tall. If I lie on the ground, I was exactly the distance you used to have to stay from from each other when they first yeah. introduced it. Uh, so I'm two metres tall and with a big bushy beard. So it's big and bearded, Philip Arder. So yeah. I, I'm now I'm stuck with it, but... 
<laughs> I think it would be inevitable that the first event that you did without the beard, the first question you would get from yeah. a child, where's yeah, your beard absolutely. gone? Absolutely. Yeah, I remember <laughs> very early, on one of my very early Edinburgh Book Festivals, so 20 plus years ago, uh, a child wrote me a letter after my event and said, when you come on stage, I thought you was Mr. Twit. Then I realised you wasn't. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's an excellent, excellent <laughs> Can't ask for more than that, really, can you? Yeah. Well, Mr. Twit's done very well for himself, I must say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I guess from someone who's written for both adults and children successfully, do you find it um, easier to write for adults as you do for children? Well, I primarily primarily write for children. And I think Hmm. um, that's... I think you can do what you like with children. I think they're much more open to to ideas. I wrote a, a series many moons ago called Unlikely Exploits. And uh, in book three, it was a trilogy, in book three, I gave the characters from the previous two books different names. So you didn't know they were the same characters because you couldn't see them, obviously. Um, And I told the story out of chronological order. And one of the characters had died in the previous book. And I gave this to my then editor at Faber and Faber, who was a fantastic woman called Susie Genvey. And she read it and she got back to me. I said, what do you think of it? And she said, I thought it was amazing. I thought it was incredible. I said, yeah, but what did you think of it? She said, I've never read anything like it. And I said, yeah, but what did you think of it? <laughs> uh, and she said, great, that's great. But some of the other people in the publishing company were worried. They were saying, well, if the characters have got different names and one of them died in the previous one and it's not told chronologically, so it's, it's all told in the present tense, but you're not necessarily, you know, how, it's just too complicated but fortunately, uh, Susie and I um, won. And then whenever I was at a signing, whether it's a different series or whatever, and sometimes a child brings up some battered copies of other books you've written before that they really which is a lovely <laughs> feeling. They're not only buying your new one, but they've come in with some of the old ones. And whenever anyone would come up with Rise of House of McNally, the third of the unlikely exploit books, I'd say to them, did you understand it? And they'd look at me like I was an idiot, because of course they understood it. And the reason why they understood it was... It's humorous, and with humour, humour isn't difficult. If maths was funny, we'd all find it a lot easier because we (laughs) think that funny is the opposite of serious, which it isn't. Actually, funny is the opposite of unfunny. Um, A funeral can be funny. It's actually an anagram of real fun. A funeral can be funny, um, but it's still a very serious thing. You can have a laugh about something at the funeral or a memory or something. It can be funny but it's still serious. Someone's dead, you love them, they're gone. Uh, and that applies across the board. So because Unlikely Exploits was funny, people didn't feel it was difficult. And because they'd read the first two books and enjoyed them, they trusted me as an author. So wherever I took them, they were prepared to go. So when you get to the point where you find out, and obviously there are little hints and things, who's who and that who really is the same person and why they've got different names and what's happening... Um, it all falls into place because children trust you and that gives you a fantastic opportunity to really write about what you like, when you like, how you like. But you also Mm -hmm. need um, to have built up a trust with your publisher. If I, as a a, a brand new spanking new author, things are a bit different now with being able to self-publish or independently publish or whatever it's called, um, I have built up that relationship so they have come to trust me put it out there as if I just go <laughs> um, yeah, sorry, yeah. the cat reacted rather badly to that gave me a very annoying <laughs> um, you know it might not happen but I, I, I think 
writing for children or writing for myself as they were writing for children, horrible little small things, um, is a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. Yeah, that's great. And so I suppose that's good that you, because I think, you know, we live in a world now where political correctness is very, um, yeah, yeah, you have, a stronger yeah. issue to deal with um, about offending people mm, and things mm. like that. But I, I suppose it's all about context yeah, rather than yeah. what you're trying to say. Like you said, a funeral can be funny in in some. Uh, no, uh, I mean, uh, uh, in some instances, um, yeah. If if you're you know people are dropping things into a coffin, into the hole where the coffin is that was of a significance. To, you know, say it might be a toy car or something and you throw the toy car and it might be a rubber ball and it bounces out and hits the vicar in the face. There's that wonderful um, scene in, in Only Fools and Horses that I always remember um, where uh, the granddad... It's, just, it's the granddad's funeral and um, he was always notorious for wearing a hat and they found... Um, they thought it was the granddad's mm-hmm. hat on the... On the um, on the hearse so they threw the hat into the grave with granddad and the vicar comes out and goes has anyone seen my hat <laughs> yeah. it was just well, it, it was, it was right here so just things yeah, like that no, yeah and, and things yeah. things do happen in in real life like that but also i mean this is yeah. the cliche but um people scraping up dead bodies off the road and things will often have a little jokey word with mm-hmm. each other and it's not being disrespectful it's because they're having to deal with such horrible horrible things that you need some form of form of levity um, I remember yeah. very early on, um, I, I, I wrote a book called uh, Awful End, which became the first The Eddie Dickens trilogy, which ended up in yes, all yeah. over the world in about 40 languages or something. But I remember uh, someone, a young guy, a teenager, took the trouble to write to me. He said he was going to his father's funeral, which was a long way away, and he was going by train. And for the train journey, he nipped into Smith's Travel, and and saw the book and didn't know anything about me and all the book, but I think he liked the David Roberts picture on the cover or something, so he bought it. And he wrote to me and he said he laughed on the train and he said, I, at that time, was thinking, I'm, you know, probably never going to laugh again, going to up to his dad's funeral. Mm-hmm. And for that short time, he was lost in that world and and, and he enough for him to want to write to me. And I thought, wow, that is, that's the power of reading and writing. Yeah. It was fantastic. Absolutely, yeah. I think with children's writers, um, do you think it's important to almost keep? Because you know, there's some people that I've met that think I can't, I can't um, fathom how you write for children. How do you with your, you know, mind and everything like that? But it's, do you think there's a way with as journals where you have to keep in touch with um, <clears throat> a child's mind? Do you almost have to sort of live with an elementary part of your life that sort of stays with you? I think personality comes into it. I um, I'm going mm-hmm. to go off as a slight tangent, but. It's about auth- it's yeah, about it. voice. The the hardest thing and the most important thing for an author to have is a voice, I think. And that voice, Dick Francis's voice, the guy who writes sort of horse thrillers, was that it was virtually invisible. When you would read a Dick Francis book, you almost forgot there were words. You were reading it, but he took you there. So although it looked very bland and very simple, it's such a skilled way of writing because you try to do it that the adjectives make you think of the action or, you know, sorry, that's an adverb, um, without <laughs> you really being aware you're reading. So that was his voice. Other, I have a voice where I'm a, I'm a know-it-all. Um, uh, although I'm not in the stories, um, you are aware you're being told a story. Um, so people who know me 
and then read my books, say, oh, your books sound just like you. But the other way around, people read my books and then come to one of my events and I do an event. They go, wow, you sound like your books. And my uh, social media presence and my emails and everything are variations on that. I'm much more rude on social media. Um, <laughs> but so I have a, a cocoon. I mean, I am pretty much like public me. You're not getting you know, unadulterated Philip here. You, you're getting much okay. more personal me. Uh, you know, I, I, I admit, as I said earlier, I should have dressed, but um, you're getting much more personal <laughs> me than a, any interview I've ever given, probably. Uh, but there's still, it's still very slightly, you know, public ardour. And within that, there is a fun lover and uh, someone who didn't like sport at school and someone who um, had the one of the masters outside his office used to have used to write notes um, saying, my door is always open, come in and see me and all this sort of thing. And I had a typewriter with exactly the same typewriter as top typeface as his. So I'd write notes that made sure they were the same number of lines and laid out exactly the same on the same piece of paper. So I'd say, my door is always open because it's broken, but that doesn't mean you can come in. You know, so, and he wouldn't notice. So there'd be, I'd, so, um, I think you might be familiar with the term piss artist, and it's quite convenient that that matches the initials P.A. Philip Ardis, so I was known as piss artist. So all all those elements of me are in there, yes, and they come out in my books, yeah. Yeah, because uh, you started, um, uh, I think your sort of children's writing, was it with writing letters to your nephew? Well, that was the big, that was the big break. That's the story I tell many times. Mm. I wish I could find a, a new and exciting way to tell it, so I'll just maybe lie and make this up <laughs> as I go along. <laughs> yeah. I, I was one of these overnight successes who'd been published for years. I um, had always, always written. As a kid, I was writing in old diaries and on scraps of paper and... Uh, I I was born a writer. I didn't know I'd be able to do anything with it, but that was what I spent most of my time doing. I have a big brother, but mm. most of my time was writing. And uh, I was always writing stories, but my actual first published books were were non-fiction books. Um, so, and because there are very few non-fiction authors back then, this is nearly 30 years ago. Um, again, if I just pause, if you could just insert a sort of gasp or something to suggest you think yeah, it's a bit late now um and <laughs> well anyway, it's fine yeah, yeah. so about 30 <laughs> years ago i um i was uh, publishing being published in as a non-fiction author and there weren't many non-fiction authors uh, appearing at events for children they just didn't really have enough so i was on the circuit and i was doing a lot of these and and um that was all great and good and i say you know i do write do write um you know story books as well but then they shut up um but yes i had i had a nephew ben and a niece cordelia and they were living in moscow with their parents because their dad worked for reuters the news agency and to cut a long story short um things got a bit hairy in moscow not not as in my beard but hairy as not in, as hairy as, you. as in um <laughs> uh russian mafia etc and it was nece- necessary to um send the, the the children to the UK and Cordelia is very very talented she's now annoyingly so she's now not a blood relative so I can take no credit uh she's from my wife's side of the family she's now a a playwright who has had some wonderful plays on in theatres in London uh and and 
Ben is a boy, so who knows what he does. Probably sucks his thumb and looks at cars. But anyway, he ended up in a boarding school in, in, in England. And um, I, I thought I'd write him letters every few weeks just because he'd, he'd gone from living with his parents in a foreign country to now being in a different country to them. Uh, and at school, 24 hours a day. So I wrote him these letters, and these letters were... Um, absolutely ridiculous story set in the time of Queen Victoria, but no effort to check, you know, were they really doing that in 1868 and who did that and had that been invented yet? Sort of, let's not bother to research Victorian England. And I called the hero of the letters um, Eddie Dickens after Charles Dickens because I thought, Eddie sounds modern, Dickens sounds old, stick it together and you've got an accessible character. (laughs) Anyway, basically, by default, um, one day... Uh, having saved the day at a Faber and Faber sales conference, my was I sensational. Um, Susie Jemby, who I mentioned earlier as a fabulous editor, came to me and said, look, you know, we love the non-fiction. Have you got any fiction? And I kept copies of these letters uh, and I took them out of a drawer and she read it and she said, blimey, this is weird. Uh, yeah, OK, you have 44 illustrations. Who would you like to illustrate it? And then there was an unknown illustrator called David Roberts, who is now incredibly well known. And yeah. uh, they agreed. And picture number one of the 44 was, I uh, decided would be a picture of me. And they said, are you sure you want to waste it? And I said, I'm such a presence, such a voice in this book. I think that they deserve to see what I look like. And then that one <laughs> book became two, became three, became four, became six books and completely changed my life. So, yeah, yeah you never know. And translated in yeah, it is 40, how, how many? About 40, 40, 40, about 40 yeah. yeah. Actually, no, I'm lying. That one, sorry. No, let's be honest. That that series is probably only 36 or something, but other books I've had. Probably. But yeah, no, absolutely wonderful. It's it's taken me all over the world, you know, China, Australia. That's great. America, yeah. Yeah, so you, I mean, you've written over 100 books Well, I stopped counting now. at 100, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah stop no, counting I stopped counting at 100. Yeah. Are there, I mean, it might be a tough because there's, there's so many books that you've written, but is there, is there a book or something that you find that's for, a particular story that's very personal to you and you sort of have a, that sort of special connection with that you're very, very particularly proud it's, of? Yeah, it's very interesting. Obviously, Awful End, as the book I've just been talking about, The Letters, um, had a very personal background. You know, as to how they came into being and had such a success for me. Uh, but what was really nice, it was a critical success. I had some fantastic views in, in what we then called the broadsheets, uh, as well as it selling in all these countries. So it really was fantastic. So I've always held that very dear. But um, I thought uh, you might want to talk to me about writing and personal things. And, it, and it's very difficult because there are always elements of uh, people i know that anthony horowitz who took my job when i left advertising i worked for an agency called mccann erickson and i said i'm leaving i'm going to go away and write and they said well there's this chap called uh, anthony horowitz who writes robin of sherwood for tv and had books published when he was about 16 or something why do you go and have lunch with him because he combines both working advertising and writing why do you go and have lunch with him and so we can persuade you to stay and I said, yeah. no, I'm not going to stay, thanks. And then he got my job. So I've known uh, Anthony <laughs> for uh, for many years. And in his book, sometimes he'll give characters, like if he hated a teacher at school, he'll give a baddie that name and kill them and all that. That's not how yeah. I think nothing purely comes out um, as a direct lift in that respect. But I mean, uh, uh, I will, I will 
uh, take elements in the, in the grunts. I wrote, um, um, I think there are four of them, yes, a quartet of books with a little known illustrator called um, Axel the Gruffalo Scheffler, who I'm hoping will uh, will be projected to create. Maybe he should team up with Julia Donaldson, I don't know. No, the lovely Axel Scheffler um, called, as I say, The Grunts, and it began with The Grunts in Trouble. And in one of the stories, uh, they live in a caravan, and Mr. Grunt is leaning out of the upstairs uh, window of a caravan, having an argument with a squirrel. And Axel did this brilliant picture of a really angry squirrel. And Mr. Grunt <laughs> leans out too far, and the squirrel bites his nose, and he falls to the ground. Now, my brother, many years before, uh, went to Exeter University, and he wasn't staying in a hall of residence. He was um, staying in digs in town. And the day he turned up the digs, he knocked on the door and the door opened and there was a woman with a little yappy dog. And she went, hello, you must be Martin. And he went, yes, hello. And he bent down and patted the dog. And when he stood up, the dog was attached to his nose. Uh, now, Martin is now retired uh, and he no longer has a dog attached to his nose. So at some stage it let go. Uh, but I always remembered the very satisfying biting action when he told the story. And that becomes a squirrel and a guy leaning out of a wood. So that is how things... Um, things from my life seep into my books at the beginning of awful end the letters um eddie dickens's mother mrs dickens and her father suffer from a a victorian disease that makes them go yellow crinkly around the edges and smell of old hot water bottles and now victorian hot water bottles were actually earthenware they weren't rubber but that doesn't matter because if you think rubber that's great mm -hmm. and that's based on the fact that months many years ago my mother was extremely ill and she was upstairs in 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 bed and um my uh, father, my brother and I were watching Doctor Who on telly and I think mum went, ah. so we went up to look at her and we went into the bedroom and she had a very swollen face and she, she stank of perished rubber. So my father thought, you know, she's, she's rotting away and called the local doctor and the doctor, Dr Khan, came along and he walked and the first thing he did was pull back the bedclothes and my mother was clutching a smelly old hot water bottle, which he then removed. And obviously my mother was still just as ill, but because she stopped smelling so bad, we all thought, well, what was all the fuss about? And went back and watched more telly. Um, and so that element became a part of, of, of the story. But I don't have a burning uh you know people have terrible things happen to them in their lives you know they lose a parent mm. they lose a child they're bullied and they might even take that as a starting point so even if it's not a central part of the story it's a theme or it's a feeling or something like that i'm, I'm yeah. much more about writing uh, writing as a process uh, the words i choose often take me off in a direction it's very different if you yeah. say he beat him over the head it's very different saying he bopped him over the head. Um, shove, push, you know, whatever words you use can... So I, like, as soon as I said the word shove, I thought of the word shovel. And I may then go off the tunnel. It might be a dead end, but it's funny, so I still use it. Or it might take me in a new direction. Or I might go there and just whoop, go back and not use it and then go off in a different direction. But often it's the actual process of the writing and the words are as important to me as what happened yeah that's amazing I, th I think a lot of writers tend to tend to say sometimes when i've had discussions with them is, is um with storytelling you can almost restore order from personal things that have happened to you and in, in their writing and i think that's a really interesting no, think, yeah. concept uh, but it's like yeah. uh, uh, the, the easiest example which i think a non-writer would understand is if someone says something really insulting to you 
and you go, yeah, uh, and then on the way home, you think of something <laughs> brilliant you should have said. Yeah. Well, the author yeah. in, in writes that, that version, yeah. and they get to have the last word. Yeah, no, very, very yes. much so, very much so, yeah. Yeah, and I, I was having this conversation last night, and it was, I don't know where the question came from, but it was quite an interesting a question that made me sort of think about it a little bit. Um, would you say your dreams fuel your imagination or your imagination kind of fuels your dreams? That is an interesting one. My wife is a literal dreamer. If she's worried a tile is going to fall off the roof, she will dream about a tile falling off the roof. It's the most right. mundane. You know, she might dream she's cleaning out her handbag with a little vacuum cleaner or something, uh, which I find fascinating mm. because we still don't really know what dreaming's for. We're told it's to process this and that, and that but no one really knows for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, my dreams often include uh, real people, but normally in very, very bizarre situations. And I, and I think it's because my brain is play along, playing along with my voice. The voice that does my emails, that does my shopping lists, that does my social media, that writes my books, yeah. uh, is also in charge of my dreams. I think creativity, whatever that is, and there are some extremely creative scientists, so I'm not dividing in that sense, but I think creativity probably fuels the dreams rather than vice versa. I don't know, what do you think? Yeah. What do you think? No, I think I think it's the same. I think your imagination fuels your dreams. Mm. You mean I, f- I feel like I'm in the dream now. I'm talking to Philip R. Darwin, no clothes on. Yeah, you know. Well, as I say, like, really, um, <laughs> well, if you've got it flaunted, is all I can say. Just be grateful that I'm growing my winter plumage, so my beard is covering much of me. And and why I'm standing up, I'm not altogether sure. But still, I wanted you to get the whole experience. <laughs> Yes. Um, I mean, I've got to talk about this. I mean, you co- you co-wrote a book with someone called, sorry, I've got his name here. Is it Paul Paul McCartney? Oh. Was, was that? Was that the, yeah. yeah. He often gets asked about this. I imagine it's a highlight in his career. <laughs> now, you obviously know him as Paul McCartney. To me, we're so close. His pa. go, hi, pa. And he goes, hi, pa. Yeah, um, yeah no, that was, that was an interesting one. And um, yeah. it's quite nice because... More more information is coming out. Sorry, let's let's rewind. <laughs> Sorry, when I was um, doing a lot of work with Faber and Faber, uh, Paul McCartney had a book published called Blackbird Singing, which was a big fat paperback, which was a mixture of his poetry and his lyrics, because he differentiates between the two, and I think that's interesting. Um, so he had a connection with Faber, and he had at one time written a song called Tropic Island Hum, which is about an island where animals go, sort of Disney-type animals go, and they are safe. And uh, so they're safe from hunters and being eaten and all those things because Paul and his wife Linda then at the time were vegetarians. Um, And he got together the guy called Jeff Dunbar and they made a film, just under a quarter of an hour film, with sort of wonderful old-fashioned Disney-type animation, and Linda was involved with it. So Paul, Linda and Jeff Dunbar uh, were very happy with this project because they thought it was a fun bit of music, a la Frog Chorus, if you remember Frog Chorus, that kind of thing. Yes. Um, yeah. But with a good message about being kind to animals, etc. And then Linda died. And Paul was obviously, you know, he'd only spent about two two nights away from her in all the time they were, they were married. So, you know, it must, oh, must wow. be absolutely gutting. And he thought, what can I do as a tribute 
uh, to her. So he thought, well, what I'll do is I'll take this 15-minute film and work with Jeff to try and turn it into a, a full-length feature film. So he and Jeff had a go and got in more and more <laughs> and more of a pickle because Paul is an amazing uh, composer and lyric writer, but I don't think film writing was his forte. So he went to <laughs> Faber and he said to uh, Faber, look, can you think of anyone who might be able to help me turn this into, um, into a film? And uh, they, uh, they said, well, look, the, the, there's this guy, Philip Arda, and here's his stuff. Have a look at it, see what you think. So he looked at some of my stuff. And he went, wow, yeah, great, OK. Yeah, I'd like to see, well, what do we do now? So I, I requested through Faber that he send me everything they'd done there, all the different versions they'd done, all the character sketches, everything. So I got this huge pile of stuff, and I looked through it, and some of it, I thought, oh, my God, this is dreadful. And I thought, oh, fantastic picture. Why are they not thinking about using this character? And, and I uh, wrote a treatment, trying to keep it as much, not writing the book I'd write, but writing, but trying to take what I thought Paul was trying to do, uh, because it's his book, and he's slightly better known than I am. And so I wrote this treatment. <laughs> And the next thing I heard, they said, OK, will you go to Abbey Road? Uh, because Paul's doing a, a new album. You go to Abbey Road and he'll he'll see you there. So I thought, OK, that's all right. Uh, <laughs> nice yeah, that'll do. So I, I toddled <laughs> off to Abbey Road and I was waiting. And someone came in and said to me, you know, Paul's in, he's just, just finishing off... Uh, in, in the in the recording studio he'll he'll be down in a minute but just say um things you know about paul he is a lovely guy he's very natural but he will talk at you he will say what he wants to say and he'll talk at some length and if you disagree or you have something you want to say just wait for him to finish and then say it and it'll be fine you know you'll, you'll be you know so uh paul comes in and straight away he asks me a question he doesn't do that at all he asks me a question i answer it and he asks me another question because what i realized what i'd done was he had read the treatment before he met me so i didn't have anything to prove i didn't i didn't have to be in the room and say i can do this he had read what i'd done and he was happy with it and we chatted for a while and by the end of that meeting he said okay look uh here's what we'll do uh, your name the same size as mine on the front of the book and we'll split the royalties Sorry, aha, it's become a book. Sorry, I should rewind again and say we talk about it as yep. a screenplay. And then he was saying, this is great, but why don't we do it as a book? You know, we could do a screenplay, but why don't we do it as a book? Because that can happen really soon. And I went, yes. And then he said, same size name on the cover, split the royalties. And I thought, all right, OK. So, <laughs> and then he took me for a tour around Abbey Road and I met the band he was in, where he was in the studio with and... Um, there are lots of Beatles pictures there and things. It was fantastic. And then thereafter, Amazing. every Wednesday on and off for a year, I'd go and visit him. And we'd go through it. I held the pen. No pretense that he was actually writing it. I held the pen, but it was always, you know, from Paul. So there'd be elements he liked and, and all that. And it, it was just a fantastic experience. Because on one level, um, because of the age I am, I felt I knew Paul McCartney because I'd seen all the movies and seen him on top of the pops and in these programs and he is a very familiar 
person. So in a way, I knew... Yeah, he's, he's done all right. Yeah, so he was... To <laughs> me, I felt... I sort of knew him, like you do people off the telly. You know, if you see Bob Mortimer, he'd yeah. gone fishing, and then you see him, you know, you feel you know him because you've had intimate chats with him, but of course you haven't. You've just been watching on telly. Um, so uh, sometimes, as I said, my Uncle Willie, I'd see every third Christmas. Paul, I was seeing every week. So in a way, I felt I knew him very well. But occasionally, I'd go... Blimey, <laughs> I'm working with a beetle here. Anyway, I'm now pleased yeah. to say that the guy who wrote the Paddington films is now writing the film script for it, and it's changed the story quite a bit. But um, my work here is done, and it was it was a, it was a fantastic mm. experience. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, we were That's both great. going on tour in America at the same time. I suspect our tours were a little different. I was sort of visiting independent bookshops from New York. He was doing a sort of 60-city tour. Uh, and in one of them, the, there's a raising and lowering platform with a piano in it. And he actually fell down the hole. They mistimed it or something. So it was supposed to be out when it was down. He fell mm. down it. And in the first of the books that I was talking about of Unlikely Exploits, there's an outbreak of holes in the in the area where holes would appear and people fall down them. And I was just really, I said to Paul when he got back, I was really disappointing that as you emerged, you weren't holding a copy of the book because it tied in beautifully with the holes in my book. Uh, you know, and he made no effort there because the book that we did together was called High in the Clouds. And uh, he said to me, do you think that sounds a bit druggy? Some people have said, you know, High in the Clouds sounds a bit druggy. And I went, well, actually, Paul, you know it does. And he went... Oh, good. Oh, good. And that's the title we get. So. <laughs> good fun. I mean, I mean, some people say Lennon and McCartney, but I think, you know, Arda and McCartney, that's well, the reunion uh, we need I, to see. I think Fifth Beatle, <laughs> you know, I, I, I talk about myself. I yeah. mean, I'm in some of the Beatles' uh, biographies now, I'm pleased to say. I'm in the back. I'm, I'm there, you know. Yeah. You must be thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, just to finish, Philip, because I know I don't want to keep you too long, but um, what would you say to people that perhaps, you know, I get lots of people ask me, you know, how, how do I get into writing? And and some people almost want like an immediate, I feel like some people want an immediate guarantee that they're going to write something and it's going to mm. get published. And you kind of go, sadly, that's not the way it, it works. It'd be a lot easier for me if it were that way, trust me. Um, so what, I mean, what would your sort of, your over your career, what are the kind of the, the biggest lessons that you've learned yeah, from, I, I've, from there writing? There are people who see writing as a springboard to something else. There are people who see writing as a way of mm. getting known and then they'd have their own TV show or, or doing this because it's a springboard for that. And it's almost yeah. as if the writing's not the important thing. There are also people who say to me, uh, what I've written is better than some of the stuff I see in the shops. And I, and I don't say, you blithering idiot, you know, that's not the case. I say, that might be true. There may be some books out there that are not as good as yours, but the difference is... Uh, not only did they write it, but they persevered and stuck with it. And that might have been the fourth thing they wrote, but they kept on pushing it. But obviously the most important thing to do, and fine, will tell you that the most important thing to do when you want to write is to read. I would actually point out that something even more important than that is to write. Because if you don't write, and exactly. it sounds silly, but there are people who, no. who who have blogs about what they're planning to write with mood boards, and this is my desk, yep. and this will be my mm. signature, and these are the special underpants, yep. and all that. Um, right, yeah, right, yeah. right, 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 right. Don't throw it away. Absolutely. Right, 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 right. Don't throw it away. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Don't be in a hurry 
to send it to a publisher or whatever. Don't think, as I say, I think they call it... Is it called independent publishing now? I don't know, when you publish your own thing. Yeah, independent publishing or um, self-publishing. So, I mean, I think now there's so many different but, routes. But, you know, you are... Um, publishers are, and this is a technical word, and I apologise, but are shit filters. There are some brilliant independent writers out there who could have got yeah. mainstream publishing contracts and probably earn more by not having one because they're cutting out them the middle person. But... Uh, if you don't have that confidence and things, the, the great thing about uh, um, getting a book from a well-known publisher is, you know, you know you're going to be booked for a certain standard that has been, uh, the plot has been looked at and the gaping holes discussed and covered. And, and um, But you just have to keep writing and, and, and keep at it. And I know there are some, people are so different. No one, I don't have an editor, but that's a conversation. Sorry, of course I have an editor. I don't have an agent. I don't have a literary agent, which is very unusual. Mm. Um, but some people are members of writing groups and they share their work, and that's fantastic. If you need that to grow, if you find it... Because when I started out, I think I should say, when I started out writing with a view to get published, there was no social media, there weren't computers. I typed on a manual typewriter and would edit by cutting and pasting. So it was a completely solitary thing. So all it could be about was the writing. No one knew whether I was writing, reached a thousand words today, earned myself a cupcake. There was none of that. There was me in a room writing. And if I wasn't writing, I wasn't progressing. And if I, so it had to be completely about the need to write, the urge to write, the, the you know, you had, to, I, I wanted to write, I wanted to write more than anything else. I used to be writing an advertising agency and then I retired um, after four years in a, in a West End agency where I worked on Coca-Cola and Levi jeans and big accounts and things to become a hospital cleaner. And I became a hospital cleaner so that I could write during the day. So it's so different from today because the, the discipline... Uh, sounds like, well, gosh, you know, that, that, that must have been a real discipline because there's no one there to support you. But I would say there's less distraction as well because stay after this, I can think, oh, well, just before I do any writing, I'll just just check my emails and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll have a quick look on Twitter and I might post a bit. Yeah. Um, so it's all, all about the writing. And another piece of advice, you, you, you've had this, of course you have, but... Uh, to any writers, fairly new, published writers new to the game, you, the day will come when someone will give you a manuscript to read or a short story to read. And yep. uh, you'll say no a million times, and then because you love their sister or brother or whatever, you'll say yes, okay, and you take it, and you read it, and you make <laughs> an effort. Yes. They think reading is, you know, it's only... Okay, not only do you read it, you you go with feedback, and you say... I actually think there's a really nice germ of a, an idea in here, but um, I just couldn't really identify with the, the narrator. And go, but the narrator was me. And you think, well, that's why you find it interesting, but, you know, you think you're interesting. Yeah. And you, you really give a critique. And they go away and they say to their friends, well, what does he know? You know, he only writes funny books or only writes children's books or only writes... You know, mm -hmm. Because anyone who says, under those circumstances, they want an honest opinion, 99.37% of them want you to say, that's amazing. Yeah. That's all about. So I have yeah, a tip, absolutely. and here's what you do. Someone gives you something to read, you take it, you read the first page and the last page, and then keep it for a month. Then you get back in touch with them and say, this is one of the most amazing things I've read. I, I mean, I, I, but I will tell you, and I, I'm really sorry, I think you're ahead of your time. 
because I I think it no, I think it's fantastic. But I think have to use this. and then they send it to publishers and publishers get back and say this book. You know, actually, we're sorry, it's not super for our list. And they say they get in touch with me. I say I told you, they're, they're just not mm-hmm. ready for it. And then they love you and and your job is done and you haven't spent hours actually trying to be helpful. So basically, be a lying and deceitful bastard. I think that is the way to do it. I've had that a couple of times, but I tend to, I mean, like you say, it's just about writing. The, the, what I tend to get more is people say, I've got this idea oh, for a story. <laughs> I've got a great idea. And, you know, I just, do you think a publisher would be interested in this idea? And you kind of go, well, have you, have you, have you written your story yet? And they go, no. <laughs> and you go, and you know, you go, well, I'll give you some advice and everything. And this is how you get on. And then you, three months later, I'm kind of thinking, well, I wonder how they're getting on. I'll check in and see if they've started, you know, and you go, how's the writing going? That story idea you had. Oh, I haven't started it yet. I haven't started it yet. I'm going to, but I haven't started it. You know, and, and, it, and uh, that happens to me more than even um, the yeah. manuscript. But there is a variation on that times. where I've had people say to me, I've had this great idea. Um, you write it and we'll split the royalties 50-50. <laughs> and you want to say to them, what do you, what do you think? Right? And I'd say your idea is um, two people plan to rob a bank but on the day they turn up at different banks, you know, and you they want you to write uh, you know, 40,000, 50,000, and you think, yep. yeah, who's who's doing the, the hard work here and whose name is being used to sell it and what, you know, it's it's this complete, like, it shocks people you cannot copyright an idea. You know? And the, yep. there's a very good reason I mean, for that. <laughs> yeah, a question I have got, actually, yeah. I mean, you, you did bring up ghostwriting. Um and I hate staying on the fence with things, but mm. I always feel like with this topic, I, I tend to be a bit on the fence, mm. is the whole, you know, with the celebrity mm. children's book writers that we get now. Because I feel that there are celebrity children's book writers that do generally mm. write mm. their books mm. and they're passionate about it. Like you get guys like David Williams, mm. who I did, you know, he is a mm. writer. Mm. You know, Tom Fletcher, who's um, starting to do it as well, who's a writer and then it looks mm. like he really enjoys writing his stories. But then you get some that... I don't want to mention no, any names. Right. Perhaps, but yeah, perhaps don't yeah. write personally themselves. So I, I guess, what would your sort of thoughts on? Well, that I, think, of I think I uh, think Paul McCartney is a good example of what's an okay thing to do because no pretense that he was holding the pen, which is why my name was the same mm. size and it's on the cover. He already had uh, a song which had been turned into a fifteen-minute narrative. And he was just trying to take it in a different direction. So I think that that's perfectly legitimate. I will mention Williams because I'm glad you said that because, um, as as winner of the, the the Roald Dahl Funny Prize myself, I one year was a judge, and we were reading um, various books. And David Williams, I think, was shortlisted for the Roald Dahl Funny Prize, which is his peers, which is you know fellow children's authors, um, course, more yeah. times than any other. Um, writer so uh, uh, and I reviewed his first book The Girl in the Dress which no one has ever disputed whether he wrote or not and um, uh, I saw Quentin Blake who illustrated it I saw him at um, a function somewhere and I said to Quentin actually I was you know quite impressed with uh, David Williams's uh, book first attempt at children's book and he said so was I if I hadn't been I wouldn't have illustrated it and that was from uh, you know, uh, Quentin. So 
Uh, you, what you said was, we know he's a writer, because yes, the thing about um, Williams, whether his books get longer and longer and could do with better editing or how much they're edited or whatever, you know, he always was a writer. He he, he wrote stuff yeah. for radio, for television, and I think people conveniently forget that. But then there are the mm-hmm. celebrities who write, often write sort of, wow, girl power kicking ass type books, and yeah. you don't think they've... <laughs> You know, <laughs> they probably don't even know what yeah, the plots are. Yeah, be so careful, are. don't we? Yeah, they probably don't know what the plots are. Um, yeah. I, I think it's a shame about oxygen. Some some uh, children's authors get incredibly aerated, but I think what we have to do mm. is remind them that uh, publishing is a money-making business. Uh, Hamish Hamilton, Faber and Faber, Mill, and all these people are there to make money. Now, some of them nurture talent. Some of them will use the money they make from the blockbusters to pay for people who they don't think will sell that much. But they are there to make money, and they don't owe us a living. And frustrating though it is that there's somebody who is very wealthy from another field of life anyway, in addition to it, gets uh, a book published, makes more money, and takes away the oxygen, takes away the column inches and newspapers. Very, very few... Uh, column inches given over to reviewing children's books you know why waste it doing that but it is still a business no one says well just because you do what you do and you don't go off and do other things so it's sour grapes it's human nature but I think it has to be partly seen in that context I mean I think I my feeling is what's the point it's like when I write jokes exactly. and things on uh, Twitter uh, someone may have said that joke before but i don't know that you know if you re- if i say something mm. that uses a very particular pun in a particular way and you've seen it somewhere else it's not that i've copied it because i want you to think i'm funny because that serves no function in my life it is the satisfaction <laughs> of my having come up with it whereas some people just lift yeah. you know they pick and um uh, and that's the same so i think it's i can't see the point of why someone who hasn't written something would want to pretend to but I think as has been proved by lockdown and the desperate way in which some some celebrities have put themselves out there on social media doing the most embarrassing things is they can't Mm -hmm. thrive without without sucking in the adoration of the public. And if that's another route they can go down. That's very serious. That's Shall we end with party hats and body paints? Yes, that's a, well. You know what? It's actually we record this on my birthday. Oh, this, this is, is birthday your birthday. Today. Could this I? Is l- my, and I'm spending it with I'm spending it with a national well, treasure in Philip Ardar. He's got his birthday suit yes, on for me. You see, um, that's which, why. That's <laughs> why. And if I turn these knobs, brackets sniffles. Um, no. Um, but I, I say you could ask me to guess how old you are, but I'm terrible at ages. I would put you oh, between okay. twenty-seven. And four hundred and sixty-three. You know what? You're not far wow. off. I'm thirty-one today. Well, you see, today. I'm quite proud of yeah. that. I if if yeah, you really if you down. really really wanted to know what if I had to guess, I would have said thirty. So that's you looking. And again, Brilliant. oh well, I'll, I'll say. Do that. you do you um because obviously you're going to put a a screen grab with some superimposed clothes of me. Yeah. Do you put one of yourself because what I have to say to people in case they don't see it, we're, we're both wearing headphones That's I'm wearing headphones and glasses yeah. and that's it. You are wearing um, something very lovely but let's just look at your head for a minute. You've got your nice, you've got your, your headphones on and then the, the quiff that, think of Tintin with black hair but they look integral to the headphones when you hang up you're going to take your headphones off because they're the same colour and that's coming with them isn't it? It's it's like a common Yes, it's, it's like yeah, it's a yeah. beautiful, fantastic. It's, it's my it's my podcast um, sort of getup yeah. that, that I've got going on. Well, I'm me. really proud. Of um, I haven't called you uh, Robert once because we should say you haven't before we before we we came on air. 
Um, <laughs> we, I, I was having problems with a few things. <laughs> the story of my life. Yes. And 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 I was calling you Robert, and you were so nice about it. So so thank thank you, Lauren. So it's very convenient that your no. name actually appears with. <laughs> When you're speaking. <laughs> yeah, which, uh, that, that's always yeah, handy, isn't yeah. it? Um, but Philip, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Please wrap yourself up in cotton wool you. Um, over you. this COVID period and continue to write books. Um, is there anything you're working on um, that you can well, give us a little I've, tease again, for I'm, right I'm now? I'm really lucky, very, very quickly. I have a series called The Nine Lives of Fairy Perry Bean Cat. I thought it was a good idea because then the publisher would have to buy nine books. Very wisely, they only bought four. Um, but it was with um, uh, Rob Bidolf who during lockdown got a letter from the government uh, thanking him for all he did because he started this draw with Rob thing uh, and then he broke the Guinness Book of Records for the, the biggest number of people drawing along at the same time ever and he does these weekly, it used to be twice a week, now it's on Saturday's Club. So he has now gone stratospheric and of course he's illustrating my book. So now that I've really made it for... Um, Axel Schiffler, brackets, I drew the Graffalo. Now I think just just by touching the hem of my cloak, Rob has um, been catapulted. Well, what will happen is in the, if they do buy the next, can't do maths, four, if they do buy the next five um, Nine Lies of Fairy Perry being cut, his name will probably be bigger than mine on the cover, but I shall swallow my pride and, and, and take, take the money. <laughs> Very, very many happy returns of the day. I'm sorry it's downhill Thank you for you now. Much. Whatever you do now, this has been your big birthday present, hasn't it? But uh, Of course. But it, I couldn't ask for a better way fun. to start my birthday. I wish I could stroke uh, your quiff. Yes. That's not a euphemism, by the way. I just want to touch his quiff. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you thank very you. much. Um, Philip, thanks so much for having... There you go. Children's um, Book of Royalty there with Philip Ardar. Thank you very much and speak to you again hopefully soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. I mean, so there you have it, a wonderful way to kick off my birthday and a wonderful chat with um, Philip Ardar. Um, be sure to check out um, one of his 100 books, well, over 100 books, I should say, um, if you're not aware of him yet. What have you been doing with yourself? Go out on there and check out his stuff. It's uh, I can't say I've read all of his books, but the ones I have been have not um, disappointed me in the slightest. Um, yeah, it's really great to have Philip on and hopefully we'll be able to chat to him again in the near future. Uh, but thanks guys for tuning in more episodes for you coming soon uh, be sure to check out Philip Ardar's new book What's in the Truck and uh, yep I'll speak to you guys soon take care